Our reading this morning will be taken from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. John, chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. morning. Modern research has served to prove the obvious that physical affection from loved ones is very critical to our emotional and our psychological and our physical health. In a May 2010 Scientific American entry, Catherine Harmon conveys that, quote, many children who have not had ample physical and emotional attention are at a higher risk for behavioral, emotional, and social problems as they grow up. A Psychology Today article entitled, Parental Warmth is Crucial for a Child's Well-Being, stated that, quote, it is well recognized that providing children in adverse circumstances with a nurturing relationship is beneficial for their overall well-being, impacting adverse health outcomes decades later. More research in that same publication of Psychology Today concluded, quote, we all need human touch and loving affection at every stage of our lives. For emotional and neurobiological development. I submit to you today that human touch is not the only touch that we need in our lives. There is a divine touch and a loving affection from the very presence of our Creator that I believe will give us complete health emotionally, yes, psychologically, physically even, to our very bones, David said, health to our bones, socially, as we enjoy even our company this morning in fellowship in Christ, and in so many other ways. But, but spiritually, Larry picked out a song, Hold to God's Unchanging Hand, hold His hand, think of it, picture it, and rest your hope on things eternal. That's what I want to talk about today. As you look this week, if you're doing the readings, we're scheduled to look at the life of Jacob more closely, and on into the life of Joseph. And as you look at Jacob for this coming week, I think you'll agree that if the presence of God was ever needed in someone's life, it was needed in Genesis chapters 31 and 32, in Jacob's life. Jacob is in between a rock and a hard place, as they say. He's in a fix, as they might say in the South. You see, his father Isaac commanded him to flee Canaan, 
that promised place of their dwelling and, and of their descendants' dwelling, he, he commanded him to flee because his brother Esau sought to kill him. Mother Rebekah had the idea and plotted that Jacob would steal Esau's blessing, the older brother Esau's blessing from their blind father Isaac in his old age by deceiving him into thinking that Jacob was his hairier, smellier brother. If you are familiar with the Duck family, it would be kind of like Esau is more like Jace, and Jacob is more like that clean-shaven brother, Alan. Isaac's a little like the dad, Phil, and he tends to, to uh, relate a little bit more to his outdoorsy son. And the mom, who would be Miss Kay in that show, uh, tends toward uh, the domestic things of life, which would be Jacob in this case. There was a difference between the brothers, and Jacob actually deceived his dad into him thinking that he was Esau and received a blessing in the presence of God from his father that could not be reversed. And so Isaac mistakenly blessed him instead of Esau, and Jacob had to flee Canaan for his life. He went clear back to Haran from whence his grandfather Abram was first called in Genesis chapter 12. Actually, uh, they traveled to Haran, but stayed there until the time came for them to come into Canaan. And so he goes clear back up north and a little east and uh, finds his uncle there, Uncle Laban. It was his mother's brother, Rebecca's brother. And he commences to work for him 14 years just so he could marry Rachel, the beautiful Rachel that he met on the first day in town. And somehow, through the scandalous effort uh, on the part of his uncle, he ended up with the older sister Leah and eventually the two maidservants as wives. So he has four wives out of this deal. And 11 sons were born to him in the following six years of what you might appropriately call the great baby race, which was another scandalous situation between two jealous sisters and their, and their uh, maidservants. Scandalous. And Jacob has to work out a deal with Laban just to be able to move away from him and have his own possessions and his own income and be able to take care of his own family. And so he's through with Laban, coercing him and changing his wages ten times, and he packs up at night and leaves under the cover of darkness with his wives and his children. And Laban, being three days' journey away and dwelling at that time, took seven days to overtake him in the wilderness. And so here is the pretty much defenseless Jacob and his family in the wilderness on the way back to Canaan, as God had commanded him. And Laban overtakes him. He escapes that situation, we'll see here in a minute. But he left a rift between him and Laban. And he is heading right into the rift that he left back home with Esau. And so he's burning bridges wherever he goes. I mean, sometimes it's his fault. Sometimes it's just not. Laban was, you know, Laban was shady. 
And, and he's just trying to, to, to be blessed. And he's blessing Laban. He's not, re, he's not receiving the love in return. And so the problem is he's fearful in any direction he goes. And it's just this time of his life, when Jacob is about 97, interestingly, something I had learned this week through the math that you can do through the various chapters, you realize that he was 97 years old when he came back and 57 when he went to Haran. I didn't know that. You know why? Because all the pictures when I was growing up and all the child's Bibles and all these things that showed Jacob and Esau real young, you know, now they're older. They're older. They're living longer, but they're older. And so Jacob's about 97 when God tells him, go back to Canaan, but he attaches to it a very important promise that Jacob is going to hold on to for dear life. And I want you today to come away from this, holding on to this promise for dear life. He said, return to the land of your fathers and to your family. Back to Canaan. Back to Isaac and Rebekah. And yes, where Esau is. And I'll be with you. Naturally, as you probably do when you see a phrase like that, you stop and think, what does that mean? What does it mean I'll be with you? Sounds abstract. God's a spirit. Um, we hold to His unchanging hand in figurative language as we sung. Uh, what does it mean that He'll be with Him? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. How is God with Jacob? Well, there's some examples. Right on the very journey of how God's with Jacob. First of all, in, the, in fear He fled Laban by night with his wives and children and flocks, and Laban and his men overtook him. And Laban said, It is within my hand to do you harm. But we see that in chapter 31, verse 24, God came to Laban in his hot pursuit of Jacob, taking off with Laban's daughters and his grandchildren back home. And God said, Laban, be careful that you speak neither good nor bad concerning Jacob. Better be careful. And so Laban overtakes him and says, you know, it's within my hand to do you harm. But the God of your father came to me and spoke to me last night and said, to do neither good nor bad or speak concerning you. So he was with him there. He chilled Laban out, if you will, in our slang terms. And then we see in the very next chapter just a simple statement. After they had a meal together in the wilderness, all of them, they had an agreement, set up a pillar, said, I'm not going to cross over here to harm you. All right, I won't cross over into this territory to come after you anymore. We got an agreement. Let's have a meal. They went to bed. They got up the next morning. Laban gives hugs and kisses to all his daughters and their maidservants and all his grandchildren. He leaves. And it says very simply, and the angels of God met Jacob there. That's all we got. The angels of God met Jacob there. And as was his custom, he named the place and moved on. Thirdly, the peace doesn't last too long. Jacob starts now turning his attention forward to home. And things get a little intense again when Jacob sends messengers ahead of him with gifts of his possessions that he's acquired to say, 
I need you to, I need you to soothe Esau, you know, groom him a little bit before I get there. Tell him that I, these are for me. I'm on my way home, and uh, I want to come in peace. And the messengers come back and they say, "We found him. He's coming out to meet you too. He's got 400 men with him." Uh oh. <laughs> Esau, let me think, that's, that's right, Dad said about Esau, he would live by his sword. That was his blessing, that he, he would be prosperous and live off the fat of the land, but he'd live by his sword, and he's coming with 400 men, great. And so we see now, what we, what we don't see yet actually at this point is that God had put peace on Esau's heart. The 400 men were perhaps because he didn't know if Jacob was coming in peace. Perhaps he was ready either way to receive him or with 400 men to defend himself. Jacob didn't know. He's just scared to death. And so he prays to God. One of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible. Look at it in verses 9 through 12 as is on the screen. Chapter 32. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. The Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I'll deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies, of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You said that, God. Now is the time. I need you to come through, is what he was asking God. And though he has heard from God to go home, though he's met with angels, he pours out his heart to God here, still in fear, still making some preparations by the way that he, ar he arranges his caravan home. He still prepares for the worst and sets his uh, family into, into different companies and cross over the ford, that is where the Jabbok River meets the Jordan. They cross over the ford and then he, it seems, at, at nighttime goes back and camps on the other side where they had come from, by himself, perhaps to pray. But it doesn't say he got to pray on that particular, uh, at that particular time. Rather, a man shows up and begins to wrestle with him. And Jacob wrestles valiantly with the man, physically for a 97-year-old handling himself pretty well. Until the man says, let me go, for it's almost dawn. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And Jacob knew who he was wrestling, for this man had touched the hip socket and disjointed him during the wrestling match. And Jacob still held on. It's tough out there uh, in the wilderness all his 40 years. The tent dweller had toughened up a little bit. And so, obviously... This man, capital M in our English translations, could have overcome him pretty easily. 
Obviously, he's sending a message to Jacob that I could overthrow you very easily. I touched your hip and disjointed it. But now I want you to let me go. You bless me. Okay, here's your blessing. You've wrestled with God now. And you've wrestled with man. And you've overcome both. You've, you've wrestled with God and you've overcome. How'd you do that? Jacob, you learned to give your life into God's hand. Your faith has grown. Jacob still had this tendency to take his wherewithal, his means, and by his own strength try to work out his problems. He still had that tendency, but he had been marked by that all through his life thus far. And now when he's most vulnerable, he basically just pours out his heart to God and says, God, you said you're going to help me. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do this without you. I'm not going to be able to do this without you. And so he pours himself out to God. You've wrestled with God and you've overcome. You've grown through something here. Also, he says to him, I'm going to change your name from supplanter, that is deceiver, one who basically takes the legs out from underneath another, one who grabs the ankle as he did his brother at birth. He said, you're going to change your name to Prince of God or Prince with God. That's a blessing. That's a compliment, isn't it? That is a confidence builder. That's an identity that he has now. His identity had always been wrapped up in my name as deceiver. How fun is that? And now it's prince with God, Israel. Israel is your name now. And that's what that word means. That's what his name becomes. When we talk of Israel and the children of Israel, we're talking about children of the prince with God. Jacob truly had grown through this occasion. Barnes says that this was a refining. This was a refining. I don't know how that went backwards. This was a refining of faith from the Lord which Jacob needed. And though he was learning much about trusting God, he resorted to his own devices and strength on most occasions, and the hazard of his present situation arose chiefly from his former unjustifiable practices toward his brother. In other words, he dug himself into the holes that he found himself in for the most part, and he was accustomed to trying to dig himself out. And what God's trying to tell him is, yeah, I know you dig yourself into holes, but if you put your faith in me, I'll help you out. Now let me ask a very candid and personal question to all of you, which you can answer for yourself. The occasions in which you find yourself today, how many of them have you brought upon yourself through lack of faith? Not all of them. Not all of them, as far as we know. And you might say, well, I can't hardly think of any of them. Things just happen to me. Here's the thing about reading the Scriptures. When you read the Scriptures, and you read occasions of people having a lack of faith and what results come from it, you might start finding that actually more and more of the unpleasant situations that we find ourselves in are from a lack of faith. They don't have to be. I'm not telling you that everyone is. I will not say that. 
things happen. They may be from God. They may not be from God. But most of the time, probably, our mishaps are our own doings, our own mistakes. Now, here's the, here's the more important question. What are you going to do about it? You see, that's what troubles and trials beg. It begs a question. What are you going to do about it? God's always been present. Look, with Adam and Eve in the garden, walking in the cool of the day, the tragedy of sin is they hid themselves from God's presence. It actually says in the text there, from God's presence, they hid themselves. Noah was invited into the ark, come in, and he was told to go out of the ark. God was present. Abram, in chapter 15, God was present with him there. Do not be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. To Isaac, he said, dwell in this land. Don't run to Egypt like your dad. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you. To Moses, he said, my presence will go with you. And Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, don't bring us up from here to there, to that promised land. If you're not going with me, I don't even want to go, is what he was saying. To Joshua, he said, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Joshua. David affirmed, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Oh, he would know. David's life was marked with hardships. And to us then, the Hebrew writer, writing to the Christians of that first century, reaches back to Deuteronomy, reaches back to Joshua, and pulls that same phrase, I will never leave you nor forsake you, out and applies it to today to Christians. Conduct yourselves in such a way that you're not covetous. Be content with such things as you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't the presence of God enough? It should be. It should be enough in our life to say, I have God's presence with me. Who can harm me? What else is there that I just have to have? I just got to have. What else is there I just got to do? Well, I've got this bucket list of things I want to knock off. Well, okay, enjoy some of God's rich blessings on the earth. All good things have come from above. But do you got to have it or you won't be happy? Do you got to own it or you don't feel that, that you're living properly on this earth? The writer said, God's presence should be all you need in this life. Hardships bring that out. Wrestling with God brings our awareness and need to the surface. Need surfaces from tribulation. When things are going well with us, we might see God's blessing. We might see His hand opened up, as the psalmist said, to satisfy all of those on the earth. But you won't see His deliverance. How will I understand salvation from my sin unless I can see Him and experience Him delivering me from it? Why should I have hope if I don't even think I'm lost? Troubles are important. 
the unbelievers say, if there's a God, there shouldn't be any of this suffering. There shouldn't be any evil. It's hard to explain all the things that go on in the world. I'll be the first one to tell you. But one thing I know for sure is without trouble, you cannot see God nearly as clear, and you probably won't even look for Him. Probably won't look for Him. That's the trouble I think we're having in our country that's been so prosperous for so long. People think they have everything they need. And they search for their completeness in human relationships. And I'm proposing to you that it's not even there. It's not even there. That's so important. But that's not all you need. You need the assurance of hope. You need the assurance of peace. Presence is critical to our survival. What it doesn't mean is that there is some sort of a free will override where God comes into my life and Every time I'm thinking something sinful, he, he stops me or prevents me from going forward into that sin. Jesus said, here's how you deal with that. You better pray to your Father that you're not led into temptation. God will help you, but you better pray about it. Don't expect, don't expect that when you become a Christian, you won't sin. In fact, let it drive you deeper into prayer so that you may call on His help when those times of trial come. If Jesus couldn't escape temptation, do you think you're going to? Jesus gave us some lessons on how to escape temptation, didn't He? Through the closeness of His relationship with His Father. It won't, it doesn't mean that God will flee from you when you sin. Here's another great mistake believers can make. Let me give you an example or two. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, took her as his wife, and was called out by Nathan the prophet for it, remorsed, and in Psalm 51 he said, God created me a clean heart. Oh God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't depart from me. And you know what? God didn't actually ever depart from him. He never left him through that whole thing. I think about Jonah when Jonah said, I don't really like this job of going to my enemies and preaching to them to be saved. I'm out of here. And it says in the book of Jonah that he fled the presence of God, or did he? He tried. In his mind, he's fleeing the presence of God. God just followed him right out across the water. And through a storm and through a fish and through the intense heat that he found himself in in the land of Assyria, he taught Jonah about his presence in his own life, but also about his great love to be present in the lives of those whom Jonah didn't think were worth it. Oh, he won't leave unless we choose for Him through a life of sin to leave us. And He won't prevent pain and suffering, as we touched on just a little bit here. God's presence does mean, in conclusion, that He'll save your soul. That He'll save your soul. That, that's what this is about. This isn't about God giving you happiness. I, I recently have had several conversations with people who say, well, doesn't God just want me to be happy? 
I say He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have peace and He wants you to have hope. He doesn't say anything about your life going so well that you're happy all the time. In fact, He said that if you're faithful to Him, you're going to need to expect some persecution to come your way. So no, it's not about being happy. It's about going to heaven. And therefore, number two, He'll see you through it. Do you know the word perseverance which God has commanded us to learn? means to peer through the severity of something. To peer through it. In other words, to see the light at the end of the tunnel. My mind immediately always goes to those tunnels on 77 South when you're heading south and you go through the Blue Ridge, uh, Big Sky, Walkers, Mountain or whatever, Blue Ridge. And you, you get in there, and you're overwhelmed by the darkness, but you can just see a little beam of light on the other side. And you peer, that's when I'm, when I'm driving, I'm peering at that. I don't look down even. I just look at that. I just want to get out of this thing. It's a little nerve-wracking to me. I'm a little claustrophobic in that thing, I think. I picture the stuff caving in, right? I got to peer through it and see the other side. And that's what God wants to do with us. He's like, look, I want you to see your way through this. I will bring you out on the other side. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood it when they said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, God is able to save us. But even if He doesn't, we're not bowing down to your idol. Because He'll see us through if we get incinerated and bring us out on the other side. The Thessalonians, Paul said to them, Your patience and endurance and tribulation is manifest evidence. Manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What do you mean? It means you're making known to everyone around you, from your brothers and sisters to unbelievers, that through your conduct of perseverance and faith, that they are saying, they're, they're going to they're make it through this thing. They're looking upward. And men tend to look up with you when you're looking up in your time of trouble. And Paul the apostle, when Alexander the coppersmith troubled him, and there are so many other examples, but Paul said there, he caused me much harm in my preaching and in my ministry, and physically, he caused me much harm. And at my first defense, no one stood with me. But the Lord stood by me. Yes, the Lord will deliver me out of all my troubles. And so today, I hope you know that that does not mean that you will not see the troubles it means that He wants you to see through the troubles, holding His hand, He'll guide you through and bring you out on the other side. And I believe that's what it means when God said to Jacob, I will be with you. And He says to us, as in our Scripture reading, and I'll leave it up here during this song for you to meditate on this, that I'll be with you so closely that I'll live in you and you in me. Now that's presence. Obey the Gospel today and come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is how He wants to deal with you. Let's stand and sing this song.